Well, you can join me in turning to your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one under seats around you and turn to the book of 1 Samuel. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you can find the reference in the table of contents. So 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath. I've been looking forward to this one. Uh, I was struck by the reaction of my boys to this story. We've, we've read through 1 Samuel a number of times by now. And when we came to 1 Samuel 17 the first time, um, I knew that, you know, young boys tend to respond positively to this story and they love this story. And I had wondered, is this just because we think they should? And so we kind of, it's a, a social kind of pressure that we assume they'll love it. So we really pump this one up. And so my boys hadn't been familiar with it yet. And so I just read it like we read all the stories. I'm typically pretty engaged, but I didn't do anything above and beyond anything normally. And we got done and they wanted to hear it again. They wanted to act it out. The next night, we couldn't move on. We had to read that story again. So there's just something embedded into our souls that resonates with this. And I think that's, there's actually something profound going on there. Uh, and we'll see by the time we get to the end of this, the Lord made us to love this story and the greater story that this points to, the greater story that this is a part of. So David and Goliath, or as one of my sons said that first time, David and Goliath. Want to hear it again? First Samuel 17. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. That's the middle of the story. Hold on. I have it printed. Now the Philistines, verse 1, gathered the armies for battle. And they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephesdamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span, something like eight or nine feet. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. And he was armed with a coat of mail or armor of scales. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. And he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the, sure, the third Shammah. David was the youngest or the smallest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, 
Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. And to take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well. Bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard them. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine? that he should defy the armies of the living God. The people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his older brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and I struck him and I delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried to go in vain, for he had not tested them. So then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come at, come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with the sword and with the spear and with the javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. 
And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled, and the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Let's pray. Our Father, we are here to hear your voice through your word. Thank you for speaking to us just now. And we pray in this time remaining that we would hear your word clearly and that you would bring it into our souls and transform us by opening the eyes of our heart to behold your glory in Jesus by the power of your spirit. Amen. So here's the question. What is this story about? Really? This story gives us a good example of how we should read our Bibles, so I don't usually step back and talk about what I'm doing as I approach a text. But, you know, one of the the reasons I preach the way I do is to model faithful Bible reading. So we're approaching the text um, together in the same way. And so it's helpful to ask a question of text in the Bible and stories like this. Uh, There's two two ways to read the Bible. You can read it as a book about you, mainly, Or you can read it as a book about God and the gospel, the good news in Christ, the good news of what he's done and promises to do for us through Jesus. If the Bible is mainly about us, then here's how we read it. We move from the text to us directly. We read this story and we ask an immediate question, how does this apply to us? And when we do that with a story, the answer most typically would go like this. Be like David. Be courageous like David. Be inspired by his courage to defeat your giants. But if the Bible is mainly about Jesus, then here's how we read it. We move from the text to Jesus to us. We still get to us, but we relate the text to Jesus first. And what do we do with this story when we read it that way? Well, that's what we'll see in our time this morning because that's how Jesus himself wants us to read the Old Testament. In Luke chapter 24, he said to his disciples, everything written about me 
in the law of Moses and the prophets, which would include this book, it's referred to as the former prophets, these historical books, and the prophets and the Psalms, referring to the wisdom literature, must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. So, according to Jesus, the Old Testament is a book about Him. It's a book for us, but it's first a book about Him. So, first we have to see how this is about Him and then how it relates to us. And in the end, this story does lead us to have courage like David. But if we skip Jesus, then what we're left with is just a short-term inspiration to be like David. We'll be inspired by him, but we won't actually have true courage because true courage will only come when we see what this story is ultimately about. When we read it in its own context in First and Second Samuel here and in light of the larger storyline of the Bible where this fits. So, we'll see three movements in this story. The strong warrior, the weak shepherd, and the victorious God. So, let's move through this story together then. The strong warrior. The Philistines have invaded Israel, and they want to fight. So, the picture is of two small mountains with a valley in between. Israel is on one side, the Philistines on the other, and then a man comes out from the Philistines, a giant, their champion named Goliath. He's probably something like eight or nine feet tall. Now, you may read that and think, okay, so we're, we're entering into mythology right now, right? This is ancient literature. It's, it's mythical. This is fiction. But that's um, not uh, necessarily a rational way to read this or a historical way to read this because we actually do know people that were that height. Andre the Giant, you remember him? He, he was only seven foot four, but there were many taller people even right up to our modern era. So Robert Pershing Wadlow was almost nine feet tall, and he lived right over in Alton, Illinois in the last century. So a nine foot tall man is actually not unheard of and is common through the ages. And so this is not the realm of fiction. This is written, um, and we would assume that this is historical. There's no indication that anything is made up in this story. So in the time of Israel, there was also a group of uh, people that were known to be the tallest people of their time. They were in the line of a man named Anak, and so they were referred to as the Anakim. And in Joshua, we, we read that some of them were, were driven and, and landed and stayed in the, in the place called Gath, one of these Philistine cities. Gath is where Goliath is from. And so it's probably that Goliath is from this line that, that goes all the way to Anak. And so he's covered here. This tall man in bronze armor, he's a bronze helmet, he has a brown, bronze armor all over him, bronze over his chest and his legs, multiple weapons, a javelin, a spear, and a sword. He also has a, a shield bearer, which would have been a guy walking in front of him with this giant rectangular shield blocking him. So, I mean, this is the ultimate fighting machine. He is the ultimate warrior. No wonder they sent him out, Right? And then he speaks, and he invites Israel to send someone to fight him one-on-one. It'll be representative warfare, a duel. Whoever wins this wins for their army. And he says in verse 10, he's arrogantly confident. He says, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Right, the original trash talker. So, side note, I don't know if you've noticed this, but there seems to be an upward trend in, uh, of bragging and boasting and overconfidence in sports from both the professional level all the way down. So I would just encourage you who play sports and you who parent 
um, youth and children who are competing in sports to note that this kind of arrogant, overconfident, boastful, boastful tone is an echo of Goliath, and he is not a model for us in this story. So I think we, we do have some work to do in thinking through what, what tone should we have toward other human beings made in God's image that we compete with. Competition's good, but we are called as Christians to fill the world with affirmation and encouragement. And so how those go together would not be like Goliath. So we, we have some thinking to do there. And side note. So what does Israel do? Verse 10. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, this is somewhat surprising because they did have a warrior to send out there, right? Saul, he, w- he was from shoulders upward taller than anyone else in Israel. So, so they do have a giant of their own of sorts, and he was chosen to be their king to fight their battles. So we might expect him to fight, but he's scared. So what might we expect to see happen here? Well, if you were with us a few months ago when we started into this book of 1 Samuel, you may remember Hannah and her prayer, her poem in chapter 2, which really sets the agenda for the entirety of First and Second Samuel. And she said in there, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. The Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of the strength of his anointed one. So from the beginning, we see God will bring down the arrogant. God will bring down the boastful. God will bring down the proud and the strong, and he will exalt the humble, and he will give strength to his humble anointed king. Well, Saul has been Israel's king, but he's failed, and God's rejected him, and now a shepherd boy named David, just in the previous chapter, was anointed semi-privately to be their king. So, the scene shifts from the battlefield to the shepherd boy in Bethlehem. So, that's the strong warrior. Now, we move to the weak shepherd, David. He's at home with his aging father. It's a very domestic scene here. And look at verse 14. David was the youngest or smallest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So, there's baby brother David again. Big brothers go to battle, little Davy stays home to feed the sheep. That's, that's the tone of this. We, we move from this mighty, boastful warrior to the littlest brother with his aging father taking care of the sheep, going back and forth between the battle line and home. And then David's dad asked him to take food to his brothers and check on them. So, and he asked him to bring, bring some evidence that, my, that the older brothers are okay. So, little baby brother gets to take food, cheese and crackers to his brothers at the battle, and then come home and tell dad that everything's okay. I mean, that, that's the picture here. Weak shepherd David. And when he gets there, he runs out to the army. And his oldest brother treats him in true sibling fashion. Did you hear the tone in verse 28? Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. You've come down to see the battle. I mean, you can hear his disdain, right? What are you doing here? You had one job. You have a few little sheep to take care of back home. You just want to see the battle. So he tries to, you know, kick little brother Davy back home. And David, in true younger brother fashion, says in verse 29, what have I done now? Is it just a word? Can I not just ask questions around here? But do you see what David's doing here? He's stirring up the army. He just heard them say, 
that Saul will heavily reward whoever defeats Goliath. And he keeps asking the question to soldier after soldier after soldier, to group of soldiers after one after another. And then he keeps asking the question, and he knows what he's doing. He came to the battle. He saw Goliath. He saw everyone afraid. And so he immediately starts talking like he doesn't see any problem fighting this guy. David sounds like he's saying here, wait, wait, what's going to be given to the one who fights this guy? Wait, with this uncircumcised Philistine, that guy? You guys are afraid of him? And so that's why they take him to Saul, because they hear how he's talking. So they bring him to Saul because he's talking like he wants to fight Goliath. And then in verse 32, he says this to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. I mean, what an amazing picture. Little baby brother Davy standing before big tall Saul and saying, don't be afraid. Your, your servant will go fight your battle for you. I mean, what a striking picture. Saul says in the next verse, you can't do it. And of course he's saying, if I can't do it, you can't do it. He looks at him and says, no way, but David makes his case. And Saul, he gives a lesson to Saul on how God does not look on the external appearance, which we heard last week. David's a man who sees as God sees that God has rescued him from lions and bears, and so God can rescue him again because David's confidence is not in his strength, it's not in a sword, it's not in his armor, it's in God. And he knows that this is a battle God will fight. God has protected him before. And so here's baby brother David. The only task anyone would ever entrust him with is bringing cheese and crackers to his big brothers on the battlefield. And now here he is before Saul saying, I will fight this warrior. And so he goes. But he goes without armor, without any military training. Saul said he couldn't do it. Eliab, his older brother, wants him to go home, doesn't even know what he's doing there. He has no sword or spear, just a shepherd's staff and a sling. And he goes and faces Goliath. Third movement, the victorious God. So we see several contrasts here as David goes out to Goliath and fights him. And each one of these contrasts or layers in the contrast shows us the true significance of this story. This isn't just about David versus Goliath. There are four layers to this contrast. First layer is this. This is a contrast between the weak and the strong. Goliath is the epitome of strength. That's why so much attention was given to his armor and his weapons and his arrogance and his height at the beginning of this. And David walks out there, short, small, younger brother David with nothing but a shepherd's staff and a sling. And the moment Goliath sees him, he disdains him like everyone else in this story. He saw that David was just a young pretty boy walking up with no protection. And so he says, am I a dog that you would come at me with sticks? I mean, Goliath almost, is almost insulted by this moment, looking on the external appearance. But as Goliath started to walk forward with his armor bearer in front of him with this giant shield. Goliath's completely covered in bronze armor. David runs at him, took a stone out of his bag, and slung it at Goliath. Now, I don't know if you know how these works. This isn't kind of like a pea shooter or little slingshot thing. This was used as a military weapon at times. These were probably larger stones, and they could go well over 100 miles an hour, and they could easily crush a skull. But here's Goliath covered in armor. There's really only one place where he's vulnerable. 
right? It's his face. So David runs and he launches it at him and he killed him with one shot, the weak triumphing over the strong. That's the first layer of the contrast. The second layer is faith versus arrogance. The center of this whole story, the climax of this story is David's speech to Goliath in verses 45 to 47. More attention and time is given to what David says to Goliath than actually the fighting, the moment of fighting with Goliath. Verse 45, read it with me. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, in the name of Yahweh of armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. So David, he knows he's weak, but he knows he has a strong God. And so this is faith versus arrogance, the weak versus the strong. This leads us to a third contrast, the living God versus lifeless idols. We see David's faith highlighted, but the point really isn't David's faith. The focus is on God. David doesn't just have faith. He trusts in God to deliver him. So according to David, this is not really a moment about David and and his courage. This is a moment about God defeating Goliath and these false gods that Goliath worships. This is God's battle. He's the one fighting. And so verse 43 said that Goliath, when he saw David, he he cursed David by his gods. So so Goliath is calling on his gods, his idols, to defeat David. But David's speech draws attention to God. Notice verse 47, the climax of the speech. He's doing this that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. So David is saying, yes, I'm going to do some fighting here. But this is ultimately the Lord using me to defeat you. God is the strong one, and he, this is his battle. And remember, David or Goliath cursed David by his gods. One of the Philistine gods was named Dagon. We've already met him back in chapter 5. And if you remember what happened to Dagon, if you were here, uh, God, the ark of God's covenant was brought into Dagon's temple. And then through the night, God had Dagon, this statue of a god, fall down before him with his head cut off. The language of that text is he, he was face down on the ground with his head cut off. That's Dagon in the temple, the god of the Philistines. Well, what happens to Goliath in verse 49? It says, he fell on his face to the ground. And then David grabbed Goliath's sword and cut off his head. So there he lays, just like his god, Dagon. This was God's victory. God is a warrior. And he defeated Israel's enemies for them and defeated the false gods. There's a final contrast to see or layer in this contrast. This story is about God's anointed king versus the enemy of God's people. This larger section of 1 Samuel, as we've been reading this together for these weeks, is really about the search for God's true king, the search for a true king. Saul was anointed as their king, but he was rejected. And then in chapter 16, just before this, David is privately anointed to be the next king of Israel. And so we wonder, is this the true king 
Or will he be rejected just like Saul? Will this be a king who's rebellious against God? Or will this be a king who's humble and trusts in God and is empowered by God? Will this be the king that Israel and God's people need? Well, when Saul was anointed as king, his first test was fighting an enemy named Nahash. And Saul defeated him. Now David has a similar test. He's anointed as king, and now he's fighting another leader here named Goliath. And he wins. And it confirms that he is the true king. He's the one whom God has chosen. He's the one who will replace Saul. And David won on behalf of Israel. Remember, this is representative warfare. So one man fights one man, and whoever wins that wins for the people. So this is about God's anointed king winning a victory for God's people, delivering them from their enemies. So that's what this story, this battle is about. Not just David and Goliath, but the weak versus the strong, faith versus arrogance, God's tr- God versus the false idols, God's true anointed king versus the enemies of God's people, and God winning a victory on behalf of God's people uh, by defeating their enemies. So that's the story. So now I want to ask a question. What is this story ultimately about? I brought up this question at the beginning. Is this about the courage that we need to face our giants? Is this about how we need to be like David and defeat our problems by faith? Or is this about Jesus? In other words, is this mainly about us or is this mainly about Jesus? Well, I think ultimately that's a false choice. It's not about us having courage or about Jesus. This is about both, but we need to get the order right. We don't move from this story directly to us. We move from this story to Jesus to us. If we skip Jesus and get right to us, we'll end up with the wrong kind of courage. We'll simply end up trying hard to be like David, trying hard to have faith like David, trying hard to have courage like David. We'll be inspired for a day and then go back to normal. So how is this about Jesus, and then how is this about us or for us? Well, first, how is this about Jesus? Well, what have we seen so far? We've seen that this is not just a random person who faced a big problem, but overcame it by faith. No, this is about God. This is about God rescuing His people and delivering them from their enemies through His anointed King. And once we see this, we realize that this is part of the unfolding of an ancient promise from the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 3.15. Adam and Eve were in the garden, and Satan slithered in like a serpent, as a serpent, and he tempted them. It was a testing. They were to have dominion. They were to be God's king and queen, and they failed that test. But God gave them this promise after sin and death now entered the world, this master promise of Genesis 3.15. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So there will be a great conflict, God announces at the beginning of history. A great conflict between the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, and the offspring of Satan, those who do his bidding. And as Scripture unfolds, this promise is woven through all of its pages. And we're, we're unfolding, the unfolding Scripture shows us the search for this serpent-crushing warrior king who will rescue God's 
people. We're looking for him. Where will he come from? As the book of Genesis unfolds, we find a narrowing focus. We know that it will be someone who comes from Eve, but that could be anyone at this point. And so we find out on the pages of Genesis that it's going to be narrowed through the line of Abraham. And then by the end of Genesis, we find that it's going to be narrowed through the tribe of Judah. A king will come through the line of Abraham and Judah who will be the fulfillment of this promise. And so, in 1 Samuel, we've been waiting for a true king. And then finally, we see this shepherd boy named David from the tribe of Judah, anointed as the king, and we wonder, will he be the one to defeat God's enemies? Will he be the one to crush the head of the serpent? Now, in light of it, this, it's also helpful to know that the, author, the authors of these historical books, like Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, Kings, they were well aware of this promise of Genesis 3.15, and they loved to echo it in subtle ways to show that this promise is still alive and God is at work to bring it to completion. And they did this, one of the ways they did this was by showing how various enemies of God's people died by having their heads crushed or cut off. It's an echo of this promise. It keeps the hope alive. And so we see Goliath, the embodiment of evil, the embodiment of pride, the embodiment of Israel's enemies. In this massive moment where if someone is defeated by Goliath, Israel's story is over. I mean, they're servants to the Philistines then. And how does David kill Goliath? He crushes his forehead with a rock, and then he stands over him, and he cuts off his head. And Goliath's head is mentioned in five different verses in this last section. It's drawing attention to it. It may be no coincidence that Goliath is described in uh, armor of scales, would be a translation of verse 5. So here's the point, scales like a serpent. Here's the point. This isn't just about David being brave. This isn't just about David winning a victory. It's not even just about the king of Israel winning a victory for his people. This is about God rescuing his people by defeating the seed of the serpent through his spirit-anointed warrior king. But this is not the ultimate defeat. This points forward to a greater battle because even through the book of First and Second Samuel, we have great hope for David, but our hope fails because he ends up falling and failing just like the rest of us. And so we'll be left waiting by the end of Second Samuel for someone else to come from David's line to be the true seed of the woman and bring true victory over the serpent. And so David's life then becomes a pattern, an expectation that Israel has over the generations, generation after generation and generation. They're waiting for someone to come who will be like David again. And he did come. And he accomplished a great victory. And he did it through these steps. So let's consider Jesus' life in light of this story and how his life unfolds this victory. So here's several steps. First, Jesus' baptism. He was identified as this true king. When he came out out of the waters of baptism, a voice spoke from heaven, God the Father saying, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. That's, That's a basic quote of promises in the Old Testament of saying he's the Davidic king. He's the anointed king who would be viewed as God's son. God's identifying Jesus as the anointed Davidic king of Israel. And then the spirit comes down on Jesus, anointing him for this task, just like the spirit did for Saul and then David. So at Jesus's baptism, he's anointed by the spirit as the king. And then he goes immediately to the wilderness to be tested 
by the great enemy. Just like Saul before went into a test by Nahash, whose name means serpent. Then David fights Goliath, who's the embodiment of the seed of the serpent. Now Jesus goes to the wilderness to be tested by the serpent, and he triumphs. He does not give in to sin. He does not give in to the temptation. And so he has victory there. And then the third step, Jesus' ministry demonstrates the power of his kingship. When he's casting out demons, he's not just showing that he has power. He's not just showing that he's God. He's showing that he's going to run Satan and evil out of this world. He has authority over the powers of darkness, and he's saying, get out of here. He even said, if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God is among you. So he's bringing the kingdom. He is the spirit-anointed king. And then on the cross... This was the moment of his greatest victory. This is where he defeated sin. He defeated Satan. He defeated death. This is where he was bruised by dying. His heel was bruised, but where he crushed the head of the serpent through dying. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 says this, through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So through death, Jesus destroys the power of death. Colossians 2.15 says that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Revelation 12 verses 9 and 10 says this, and the great dragon was thrown down. Speaking of, of the victory of the cross and resurrection in symbolic terms, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, and he was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So at the heart of the cross is substitution. Jesus is substituted for us. He takes the punishment we deserve so that we don't have to face that forever. This is a dominant and central image in the New Testament, but it's not the only image. Another image of the cross is that of victory. Historically, theologians have referred to the cross as a victory with the phrase Christus Victor. Jesus didn't just die as a lamb, he conquered as a lion. He didn't just lay down his life like a sacrifice, he conquered like a warrior. And Jesus' victory happens through his substitution. It's through laying his life down for us that he accomplishes his victory. Because Satan's greatest weapon against you is your own sin. He tempts you so that you'll sin, and then when you do it, he wants you to feel lousy about it. And he wants you to never turn back to God and think there's any hope for you, and think that you're on the sidelines, and think that you could never know for sure that God loves you, and that you'll feel guilty and accused now and forever. But when Jesus died for you, he took the full punishment and penalty for your sin upon himself and received the ultimate condemnation so that you, as you put your trust in him and are found in him, you find that Satan actually has no more power over you. The accuser's been thrown down. You are welcome in God's family. He loves you. You're dear to his heart. That's why he would write history like he has and give you the story like he gave you this morning and have that point to the ultimate victory of Jesus on the cross. And then finally, notice it's not only through the cross and the irony of weakness, just like this story of David, victory through weakness, but through his resurrection and ascension, Jesus is enthroned as the king and he stands in victory. 
So now what does this mean for us? The story is about Jesus. What does it mean for us? Well, let's ask this question. Where are we in this story? Who who should we identify with first in this story? Well, we're not David. We're the Israelites cowering in fear. Look at them. They don't stand a chance against their enemies. That's us. Do you stand a chance against sin and Satan and death on your own strength? We don't stand a chance. And we're often anxious and fearful. But what did God do for them? He didn't give them an inspiring example that day for them to go out and conquer their giants. He first gave them a spirit-anointed and empowered king to fight for them. And what happened after David conquered Goliath? What happened to those Israelites? Well, a complete transformation. Look at verse 52. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines. They went from cowering in fear to rising with a shout. They had courage to go after their enemies. Was it not the same for Jesus' disciples? Cowering in fear, in distress when Jesus died, hiding out in a locked room. And then what happened when they realized Jesus rose from the dead? And what happened when Jesus poured out the Spirit? They took the world by storm with boldness, announcing a great victory that God accomplished for them. They didn't say, we have a new source for you to be courageous against your problems. They said, God has won. Jesus is king. Sin and Satan and death, they're defanged. We're free. Come join. Rise up with a shout. Go after these enemies. Fight sin to the death. You have authority, spiritual authority over the powers of darkness. There is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're free. Yes, they're suffering. Yes, death is something to be afraid of at some level because it's unexpected. Yes, there are spiritual forces that intimidate us. Yes, sin is like an addiction and it has power. But sin's power has been broken. You have spiritual authority in the name of Jesus over spiritual forces of darkness. Come join the victory. That's the message of the New Testament. And then we find ourselves kind of feeling a bit like David. Faith in the God who gives the victory because the battle is the Lord's. So we need to remember this is where we get courage. Not by saying I can be like David today. But by saying Jesus was better than David. And he loves me. And he's defeated all my ultimate enemies. And because of him, with him at my side, I can face my fears. I don't need to be afraid. And this is why we started this morning. I started this morning by noting the dominant tone of the New Testament and apostolic Christianity is confident joy. In the midst of sorrow, in the midst of grief, through our tears, through our fears, we say, this is my God. He's won a great victory. And this is why kids love the story of David and Goliath. And we should tell them of the greater David and thrill their hearts with the story that they're a part of. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this great story of the universe that we're a part of. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your power. We thank you for Jesus. And Jesus, we thank you that you are our conquering, courageous King and that you took this path of weakness to the cross 
to accomplish your victory for us. And so we pray that by the Spirit you would give us great courage, moment by moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and receive benediction. Now may God, our great Father, and Jesus Christ, our warrior King, empower us by the Holy Spirit to live this week and forever, moment by moment, with great courage and faith in Him. Amen. Go in peace.